thought seriously about teaching this entire class standing on my head. But there were two problems. Number one, I'm not sure you'd be able to see me. And number two, I can't really stand on my head. All right, maybe that was the bigger one of the two problems. So instead, we're just going to do the best we can as we look at these photographs or pictures or snapshots from the Gospel of Luke. Now, I don't know how many of you drive around, and I don't know how many of you drive outside of just where you normally go. But I have found at this point in my life, I have become very dependent upon GPS and those iPhones. And when um, those of you who are young, who are pre-driving, you know, who did not drive before these phones do these miraculous things, you won't understand what I'm talking about. But the rest of you will remember, we used to have maps, like folding paper maps. And you would look at them and try to find streets. And if you didn't have a a good, clear way to go, you would pull in and you would go in and you would ask someone, how do you get from here to there? And they would give you directions. It might be, oh, go three blocks, take a left at the light, blah, blah, blah. Or they might say, go down till you hit La Madeline and right before La Madeline, take a right. Or, you know, and they would give you directions. Not now, ma'am. I plugged that puppy in and I'm driving. And I'm driving good. But sometimes I still miss the turns. And I still miss the directions. And I was in a rental car recently in a foreign place like Dallas. And uh, I was in a rental car and I had plugged in where I was going and it told me to take the next right. Well, there's like three options for a right. I mean, which one do you want me to take? Be a little more specific, please. And then I clearly didn't get it right because the thing just starts saying incessantly, Take the next available U-turn. Take the next available U-turn. Because I've clearly not turned where I was supposed to and I'm supposed to U-turn and come back around. Well, I actually found that to be quite useful in preparing today's class. Because since I'm not able to teach it while standing on my head, instead I will use the theme of a U-turn. And the reason why is Luke is one of four Gospels, one of four books that speak of the life and death of Christ in a, in a narrative form. And, and each one of those books are written from a different approach and they show a different, unique angle on the story of Jesus. And Luke's is really fascinating to me Because Luke, first of all, wrote in some of the best Greek you'll ever read. His Greek is really, really good. Now, there are places where it reads a bit chunky and bulky and difficult, but that's where he's taking some Aramaic or Hebrew from the events and kind of putting it into Greek and doesn't want to lose that Aramaic 
character, okay? But when he's just writing Greek, it's really, really good. And his gospel, his book of, of Luke and Acts, the one that goes with it, are written uh, like, like a piece of art in some ways. It's not just somebody sat down at a keyboard and started clunking away. It's very clearly structured and outlined and written, and it's written like a piece of literature. It's got certain themes that, that follow through. And one of the themes of Luke, and it's the theme I want to talk about today, is that God is doing a major U-turn in our world. God is reversing this world. Now, I want to tell you, I am acutely aware of the fact that this world stinks in a whole lot of ways. And if right now you're saying, what do you mean this is the greatest thing in the world? Give it time. You will eventually find that this world is a stinker in a whole lot of ways. Um, I, I, I am constantly faced with situations that just cause you to grieve. And there are situations that, that come across my desk or come across my iPhone or come across my life that make you grieve. I had a chance to, to do a, I do a trial academy each year, as I've referenced before in here, and it was a Tuesday, well, Monday afternoon, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week. A number of you from, from uh, church here have, have helped out. Um, Coach was there, Max was there, Beverly was there, and, and some others, and, and I'm grateful for that, but, but in the process of talking, I think our attendance was 1,029. And in the process of talking for over 20 hours over those days, um, I got a chance to visit with a lot of people who have cases that are just tragic. I mean, absolutely tragic cases. Whose lives themselves are just tragic. And uh, uh, one in particular, so Pastor uh, Jarrett, but Pastor David uh, was there, Pastor David Fleming. And one lawyer came up to Pastor David Fleming and he said, you know, my life's a, a, a wreck and, and all. And I used to be a, a believe in God, but I don't anymore because uh, it just seems to me that, that the human brain uh, it, it is it is too, what did he call it? He, he had some phrase that, that, oh, it is a fool's errand to think that the human brain can go out and understand God. And Pastor David said, boy, you're right. And that's the entire Christian message is it's a fool's errand for us to try to go understand God. And that's why God had to come to us and reveal himself to us. And the, fe and, and the fellow said, well, I need to think about that. And, and David said, well, tell me about you and tell me about your life. And the fellow said, well, you know, uh, um, 
I've been married for X number of years. Uh, my wife and I uh, have uh, three children. We adopted them because we couldn't have children. And I'd always said to my wife, you want children, we'll adopt. And so we adopted three children. And, and, uh, uh, and you know, it's wonderful. And, and Pastor David said, time out. You are the best example I know of, of God, in a sense. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, these three children you adopted, if you had not gone out and chosen them and adopted them and brought them to your home, would they have ever known you? Would they have ever known what it's like to crawl up in your bed when there's a thunderstorm? Would they have ever known what it's like to, to, to sit with you and eat dinner? And the man said, no. Pastor David said it would have been a fool's errand for them to ever assume they'd have that relationship and understand and know you if you had not first gone out and gotten them. But since you went out and got them and brought them home, now they can know you. And uh, the guy was like, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. And he said, that's the Christian message about God. And that's what God's doing right now. God is, uh, and this is what Luke's writing about, God is taking a world that is off course and God is doing a great reversal. And this reversal is happening in the hands of God. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to look at Luke's look at that theme of this world as being reversed by God. And that's good news. That's also some bad news, depending on who you are. But whether it's good news or whether it's bad news, it's still news that I think Luke says you need to think about. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's think about it and let's see what it has to say. And we'll start with the good news perspective. Here's your first snapshot. This snapshot comes from Luke chapter 1. So it's the very beginning. And it's before Jesus is born. It's before Mary finds out she's pregnant. It is when Elizabeth, a cousin, gets pregnant with Zechariah, the husband, to give birth to John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. So it says, um, there was a priest named Zechariah. And he had a wife, and her name was Elizabeth. But they had no child. Now, here's the U-turn. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And all of a sudden, in the very beginning of Luke... God takes a situation of the world on its own. God steps in, even though Elizabeth is past childbearing age, never been able to have a child. God steps in and says, you're going to have a child. His name's going to be John. He will be John the Baptist, who is the foreleader who will prepare the way for Jesus. So if we take it, this U-turn continues, whoops, U-turn continues, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
So not only is God going to do a U-turn in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth and bring them a son, but that son's going to come into the world and he's going to be God's tool to do a U-turn, to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This word turn, epistrepho, means a U-turn. Turn around. Go back. And so John the Baptist is going to U-turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It's not only them he's going to U-turn. He will go before him in the spirit and in power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This again, turn, epistrepho. That's the same word, to turn around, to go around. That's what John's going to do. God says, I'm going to turn around in your family and give you a son. And that son is going to cause the people to turn around. And the hearts of the fathers will go to the children. He's got some references to the Old Testament Micah here. The hearts of the father will turn to the children. The disobedient to wisdom of the just. Going to make ready a people for the Lord. I mean this is what God's going to do. God's going to do a U-turn in the life of a couple. That will bring a U-turn into the world. That's the amazing role of our God. I don't care what your situation is. I don't care what you're wrestling with. I don't care what the the world's mess is at your shoulders or at your feet or on your back or in your gut. But whatever it is, we worship a God who's about making U-turns to take the tragedies and the messes of this world and turn them into something that's positive and that builds his kingdom. And that means it builds his people. All right, so Elizabeth, pregnant with John, going to have John while John is still in her womb. Mary finds out she's pregnant divinely by the Holy Spirit with the Christ child. Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and, and uh, uh, Elizabeth weeps, uh, leaps, <laughs> leaps in, uh, 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 John leaps into Elizabeth's womb. And there's this beautiful song in Isaiah, I mean in Luke chapter 1, and that's where we go next. God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And this is referencing Mary. God has looked on the humbled estate of his servant. So here's Mary. She's betrothed, not yet married. And and she's a young girl. And she is found out she's pregnant. And she's not of any real count. She's just just a young lady. And uh, uh, God's going to do a U-turn here in her life. He's going to take the humble estate of his servant. And as she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And Mary is still often called the blessed Mary. 
the mother of Jesus, and rightly so. And, and I love all of this because we're reading about special people, but who's really special in all of this is God. And in God's mind, there's not any one of you or me less special than Mary or Elizabeth or Joseph or Zachariah. This is, is something that we're not meant to read and say, oh my, how it must be nice to be someone God cares about as if it's over there. Luke's gospel is for all of us to see, to read, to experience, and to taste. Because you need to know, and I need to know, God cares about you. God cares about not just you, he cares about the person sitting next to you. We've always got to be so careful because the tendency is for us to view the world in terms of what it means to me. But we're supposed to, we're called to view the world in terms of what it means to God. And that means to the people around us. So we love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves. It's never me it's always us. And so when I say God cares about you, I want you to absorb that. But don't simply absorb it. Recognize that means God cares about the people next to you. Or the people who aren't in church. Or the people who've done ABC or XYZ. God cares about humanity. And he cares about this world. All right. That's the good news. <clears throat> now, Luke tells this in a way that kind of mixes in a little bad news too, depending on how you see it. So let's look at some more turn passages. We'll stay within that, that uh, Mary's song for just a moment for this. In addition to lifting her from her humble estate to being called blessed, we read, He, God, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. This is the God of reversals. This is the lesson that stands on, I, I should teach standing on my head. This is God turning the world upside down. This is God taking the, the proud in heart. The people who are proud in their thoughts. They're doing pretty good. And bringing them down. He scatters the thoughts of the proud. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. While he's lifting up those of humble estate. He's filling the hungry with good things. He's sending the rich away. Empty. And th this is um, this is a very profound thing worthy of us thinking. He scattered the proud, the thoughts of the proud. You know, the, the the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. There's a an ironic way this is worded, 
And the irony in the Greek is also present in the English. We just need to not read over it. We need to stop and soak it and absorb it. Because pride is something that is thought about. Pride is in your thoughts. Now it says thoughts of their hearts. If you've been in this class much, you know that I've, I've explained over and over. Lev is the Hebrew word for heart. And in the Hebrew mindset, they thought your thinking was done in your heart. But, but for us, that's the brain and the mind. So he scattered the proud in their thoughts, the thoughts of their brain, the thoughts of their mind. He's taken that organized, proud thought and just puffed it away. Because that's what it is. You ever seen a dandelion with all of the little fluff on it? We used to pick them when we were kids. And it all floats away. That's like a dandelion thinking it's a rose. Thinking it's a prince of flowers when it's a weed. That's being proud in its heart. Being proud in the thought, hey, look at me. You've got a dandelion, but I'm thinking I'm a rose. An award-winning tea rose. With some beautiful, novel color. That's what I am. And it's like God just says, nope, you're a dandelion. God scatters the proud and the thoughts of their heart. He brings the mighty down from a throne. Do you know what a throne is? A throne's a seat up above everybody else's. In kings and rulers, they'd sit on thrones. Even in courtrooms today, the judge sits elevated to everybody else. It's not so he can be seen, per se. It's because in that courtroom, he is the law. And so he is elevated above all of the people. You know, elevation goes with um, uh, position oftentimes, and it certainly did in antiquity. So you've got the mighty people sitting on their throne where they can just sort of move their finger and things happen. And God just grabs them by the scruff of the neck and pulls them down. He's doing U-turns. He's changing the world. And then he finds those of humble estate and those are the ones he lifts up. He finds the hungry and he fills them with good things. And then he takes the rich, takes what they have, sends them away empty. Now, we live in the United States of America. And we have various people in various places in terms of richness. But all of us right now, all of us, I dare say, to some degree or another, when you compare us to certain parts of the world, all of us have an embarrassment of riches. All is a tough word, but I'll bet 98% of the people who will hear this have an embarrassment of riches compared to some people in the world. We, we've got a relative degree of peace here in America. I'm not saying that there's not violence. I, I recognize there is. I recognize there's gun violence. But you compare us to the eastern Ukraine right now. 
and 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 we've got a richness of of safety that they don't have right now and all of those things are things that if we think they're ours god will pull them away from us and send us empty and rightfully so Every believer should understand that anything that we have, we are stewards of. It's God's. We're just in charge of it. And with that, he said very clearly, comes a lot of responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so whatever it is you've got, whatever it is you've got that is of, of use and of value and, and of... of um, function in this world, whether it's a resource of money or a resource of time or a resource of energy or a resource of skill or a resource of safety, if we don't see that as belonging to God and put it to use for him, we better be watching for the U-turn because here's where it gets worse. He says good news for the needy, but bad news for the self-sufficient. Now, if you go back to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew in his gospel in chapter 5 has what are called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, there are, I think, nine of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst. You've got nine of them. Luke doesn't give those nine. you got nine blessings in Matthew. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Luke, he only gives four of them. And he gives something Matthew doesn't. He gives four of the blessings and he gives four woes to go with them. Numbers had a great meaning back in that day beyond simply counting things. And the number four was a, a, a number that stood for the world, the earth. You have four directions, north, south, east, and west. The four winds, the four corners of the earth. There are four elements, uh, air, fire, water, and, and uh, earth. You know, four was seen by the ancients as a number that represents the earth in its fullness. And so Luke picks four of those blessings and he weds them with four of the woes. Let's look at them. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's the U-turn. That's the U-turn from verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. That's one. Blessed are you who are hungry now because you'll be satisfied. That's the U-turn. But woe to you who are full now. You'll be hungry. Now, these are... These are tough to read in a way. These can be misunderstood. God's desire is not for people to go hungry. 
This is not Jesus calling you to be hungry in the sense of quit eating, don't have food. If you've got food, you thank God for the food. It's his food. You eat it. You do it responsibly and you do it hopefully to, to his praise and glory and, and to using your body good. You know, the, the, the world to come is a world where nobody's hungry. Bless you, Castell. It's a world where nobody's hungry. I said that so people who at your job who are watching this know you were at church today. They know Lorraine's here, but you're kind of like. Um, I'm joking. Castell's marvelously here. Um, you know, this, this, don't read this as an instruction of, oh, mercy, I better skip lunch today because God wants me to go hungry. He doesn't want you to go hungry. He wants you to be filled. He wants everybody to be filled. He wants you to help fill other people. Woe to you who are full now, you'll be hungry. He's talking U-turns here. He doesn't want you to miss the U-turn. Look at the third one chosen by, by Luke. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And that's the U-turn promise from verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, because you're going to mourn and weep. There's, there's, there's the U-turn. If you're mourning and weeping, then you can take joy in the U-turn that's coming. If you're laughing, be careful because that's just not the way it always is. But you give credit and glory to God for it right now. And then the fourth and final one that Luke puts out there is, Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you for the sake of Jesus, your reward is great in heaven. And that's the U-turn from the passage that shows up in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now, this one, and, and I, to fit it on the screen, I pulled out the verses, the, the sections of the verses that talk about this is linking up to when people exclude you, revile you, and hate you for the sake of Jesus. But, but what we need to recognize is all of the difficulties in this life that come our way are difficulties that God, the God of U-turns, can and will redeem when we set them before him. And two of these are in the future tense. Two of them are in the present tense. The first and fourth are present. The two middle ones were in the future tense. God's doing it now, but God will continue to do this into the future. This is who God is. And this is what he does. God is not anyone who has created this world and sits back disinterested. God is not a God who created this world and now watches it like a TV show to see what happens. What are you going to do this week, God? I'm going to binge watch North America. That, that, you know, that's, that's not what God's doing. God's in the midst of this world. And too often, uh, uh, Larry Burgess 
would say this, so I'm going to say it for him since he's seated out there. Too often, Christians have an attitude of, well, this world's terrible, so we'll just wait until heaven. And that is not at all the biblical message here. The biblical message is this world is terrible and God comes into this world to seek to change it. Now that doesn't mean this world can get incrementally better any more than you and I can get incrementally better and one day we're going to be perfect. No, there's going to come a time where God removes this heaven and earth and places a perfect heaven and earth with you and I in it. But in the meantime, as a statement of his character and a statement of our purpose, we need to be about trying to make the U-turns. We need to try to make this a better place. Jesus wasn't offering a hollow and empty prayer when he says and taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Those are our works and our efforts on behalf of God that speak to the world of who he is. That's why on a day where, you know, this was an interesting week legally, Roe versus Wade was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court sending back to states the decision of what their position should be on abortion. And it's, it's uh, sometime I'll talk to you about it legally as a lawyer. It's a fascinating legal uh, road that this country's been on and that this country continues to be on. Uh, you know, there, there was, um, uh, how are we doing time-wise? Do you all have five minutes for me to talk about this? Okay, let's, uh, let's go back in history for a moment. Um, 1860 through 1865, lots of big stuff was happening. It's called, in the U.S., it's called the Civil War. And in the Civil War, a number of problems happened among, uh, that, that happened as a result of the war. And those problems included um, addiction. And the addiction uh, that's notable, at least historically, includes uh, to opiates, painkillers, alcohol, and pornography. And after the war, there was a friend of... um, a fella who was addicted to those things and he committed suicide. I believe he committed suicide. Pretty sure he committed suicide. And his friend said, ah, that suicide happened because of these addictions. And so the friend joined with the Young Men's Christian Association, YMCA of New York City, and got passed laws that were anti-pornography laws. The anti-pornography laws included 
laws that said you can't ship through the U.S. postal mail anything that is basically sexual in nature. So it meant you couldn't send pornography, and that includes any writings that were pornographical writings. That would even include letters between spouses. But it also included the limited birth control that was there at the time. And those laws stayed on the books for quite a while. Some of them got repealed, but some did not. Connecticut kept theirs on the books even into the 1960s. And so in the 1960s, along comes the birth control pill. And in Connecticut, the birth control pill is illegal under these laws. So in New Haven, Connecticut, which is uh, where Yale University is, the Planned Parenthood opens a clinic to dispense the pill to women who want it. And there is a woman named Estelle Griswold who is running the Planned Parenthood who in front of like a cop or something dispenses birth control pills to a woman. And Estelle is arrested under the law and she is found, she pleads guilty but then appeals it and says the law is unconstitutional. She should be allowed to sell it. So Griswold versus Connecticut goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court on the issue of is, it, is there a constitutional right to birth control? The decision is made by the U.S. Supreme Court, yes, there is. It's part of the right of privacy. The problem is the U.S. Constitution doesn't have a right of privacy. So the court says, well, it's implied. It's inferred. You can't have a lot of the rights that are in the Constitution if you don't have a right of privacy. And so the right of privacy is used in Griswold versus Connecticut to say you're allowed to have access to birth control. And the state cannot step into a person's life and say no. Several years later, Roe versus Wade comes in. And in Roe versus Wade, the argument is Griswold versus Connecticut says there's a right of privacy in reproductive matters that should extend to a right to abortion. The Supreme Court narrowly says yes, but there's no real basis for that either in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say that that right exists. The Supreme Court loops it in under Griswold versus Connecticut, which is looped in under the anti-pornography laws that were still there on the books from the post-Civil War time. And so Roe versus Wade says, but we've got competing interests here because there is this life form that's got a competing interest. So at what point does the life form's interest overcome the woman's right to choose reproductive issues for herself? 
And they said, certainly, that line, once the baby is viable, once the baby could live outside of mom, at that point, the mom has no competing interest that's greater than the interest of the child. So that's what Roe versus Wade said. Since that time, there have been several decisions on it, but ultimately, now, the Supreme Court has said, there's no basis for that in the Constitution, They have added to that, uh, Justice Thomas in his concurrence basically says, we probably ought to also revisit issues like uh, contraception and whether or not the state's able to prohibit that. Um, Those types of issues are all around us. But as a result of what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, We're going to have a different legal system when it comes to abortion and childbirthing in America. And I don't care where you are on that issue in terms of what I'm about to say. Whether you're over here or over there, for what I'm about to say doesn't matter. Because what I'm about to say is this. God expects his people to find those who are hurting, to find those who are desperate, and to love them with a selfless love and compassion. And if this means that women are going to be carrying children that they could not have afforded to carry because a number of abortions happen because the women just can't afford the child, can't afford the medical care, can't afford the the hospitalization even I mean heavens our daughter has great insurance our daughter that had twins still cost them like 15 grand to have those babies there are a lot of people that that have abortions that don't have the money and what God's people need to do right now is step up and say we will do anything we can to help Because we're not here just to tell you, hey, you can't do that, now get on down the road. We're here to say, we care about you. We care about your child. We want to help. We are here to do a U-turn in your life and to do a U-turn in the life of that child because God cares. Because human beings are made in his image and they have value. And we want to show that, not just say it. And we've got to do that. We've got to do that. I want, I, I, want, I want God's people to rise up and, and be seen not as people of no compassion, but as people of ultimate compassion, as people who, who, who seek out those in need and do everything in our power to try to bless and help and love on them. And that's an opportunity we've got regardless of where you land on that issue. So the blessings and woes, let me finish this up because I've got a couple more things I want to be sure we say. Here's another passage. Here's my synopsis of that. The poor get the kingdom of heaven. Rich already got theirs. The hungry get satisfied. Full, they're going to be hungry. The weeping get to laugh. The laughing will mourn and weep. And the hated get a great reward in the kingdom. Whereas those who are spoken of highly are going to be treated like false prophets. And there's a major shift in thinking there. And that major shift in thinking, if we understand the God of U-turns, it should change our mission, it should change our vision, and it should change our values. No longer should we be valuing 
the things of this earth that God wants to U-turn. We need to value the U-turn. Our mission no longer needs to be, how do I get rich? Our mission needs to be, how do I use every resource I've got for the kingdom of God? Our value needs to be not, who's got the great reputation? Our value needs to be, how do we give God the great reputation? I had a young lady come up to me uh, at my seminar, and, and uh, uh, Pastor Jarrett had urged me to take an hour for breakfast on Thursday before the seminar started at 8 o'clock. He said, why don't you get there at 7 o'clock and just invite anybody who wants to come early to hear you talk about your faith. Uh, you're there to teach them how to try lawsuits, but they know who you are. They know you're a believer. Uh, just talk to them about your faith. That'll probably curl some toes at a legal convention, but go for it. So I told him, I said, no pressure. I'm not looking for anybody to be pressured, but I, I'm going to I'll have breakfast at 7 o'clock. If anybody wants to show up at 7 o'clock on Thursday for an hour before the seminar or 45 minutes, I'm just going to talk to you about my faith. It's, it's what makes me the lawyer I am. It's what gives me purpose and direction and strength and wisdom and, and energy and, and everything else. And uh, the, the, I mean, like four or 500 people showed up for it. It was really, really pretty cool. And yeah, glory to God, not to me, not to me. I was scared to death. Um, I can talk all day long to four or 500 or a thousand lawyers about how to pick a jury, but this is a different subject matter. Um, and a young lady came up to me afterwards and she said to me, um, I'm very liberal in my politics. And I said, okay. She said, well, you still talk to me. And I said, of course. <laughs> she said, um, and I used to go to church and I used, I used to consider myself a Christian, but I just don't go to church anymore because I'm not comfortable there because of my politics. And I said, why do you, why are you liberal in your politics? And she said, well, I just think that's right. I think that, that, you know, I think God cares about the poor. I think God cares about refugees. I think God cares about these things. And I said, so you think that God cares about those things and you quit going to church because the church doesn't? And she says, yeah. I said, well, first of all, change churches. I said, second of all, don't give up on God. Make it your mission in life to redeem his name. Make it your mission in life to tell people God cares about those things. Now, be open to maybe changing your views as you learn more about God and what he cares about. But don't, don't walk away. Um, anyway, it... it our faith needs to change our values. And that's hard for us to let it do. All right, let me end this. We've got six minutes left, five minutes left with a think about it. There are two think about it passages that, that actually three, but I'm only going to have time maybe for one, maybe two. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. That's like really hoity-toity clothing, expensive. Who feasted sumptuously every day. Even rich people didn't eat sumptuously every day. At his gate, he had a gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus who wasn't covered, clothed in purple and fine linen. He was clothed in sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Dogs are not a good creature in the Bible. They're not like the little, it wasn't tizzy, okay? Um, the, these are mongrel dogs that, that uh, uh, are licking his sores because it's just another form of abuse. It wasn't, oh, poor little thing, let me give you kisses. No, it's like I'm eating the blood. The dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Our U-turn God. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, in torment, he lifts up his eyes, he sees Abraham far off, he sees Lazarus at his side, and he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, like Lazarus. See, read this carefully. The rich man still sees Lazarus as just an item, a a, a messenger, a courier. Send the boy to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. That is offensive in itself, okay? I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, hey, buddy, remember in your lifetime you had those good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? Now he's comforted, and you're in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm. You understand that? You had a gate that kept Lazarus from getting the crumbs at your table. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us, me and Lazarus. And the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him. He's still the same thing. Make him go to my father's house because I have five brothers and I want them to warn him lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, hey, they got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, no, no. But if someone comes from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. By the way, Jesus rose from the dead, and there's still a whole lot of people not convinced. But gang, there is a great reversal occurring in the world at the hands of God, and God's turning this world upside down. And um, I don't have time for the next one. But we will get to it. We've still got more time for Luke. But I want to give you a couple of points for home. Dale Hearn with time to talk about them. I got to refocus. I got to refocus. I got to refocus how I see my life. I've got to refocus how I see my opportunities. I've got to refocus how I see my responsibilities. I got to refocus. I got to refocus how I treat other people. I got to refocus how I care for other people. See, we've got a God who's doing great things with these U-turns. We've got a God who's really about bringing redemption in this world. And I want to be on team God. I, I don't want to be watching the parade. 
I want to be carrying his train. I don't want to be cheering him on from the sidelines. Coach, put me in the game. I can play. I want to be on, I want to be on the field. It starts out in small steps. It starts out with committing your life to him, but it doesn't end there. That's the start of a glorious walk. I just got to get my focus right. I got to put my energy where it needs to be spent. We've got 30 seconds for one last story. Another lawyer came up to me and he said, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. He said, and you'd see it a lot of times, except when I'm at work and things start going haywire. Then I don't show it by the way I'm acting. I don't show it by the way I talk. And I don't show it by the way I treat other people. What do I do? I said, you take that to Jesus. And you confess to him you're not doing that. And you start working at doing better. Because he doesn't want you to be that kind of an example. He wants you to be the person who when the storms are raging, you're a solid rock. Because you know who controls the storms. And I said, that's just you walking in faith with him and growing every day. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. And don't be someone who's a Christian when the tide is good and the weather's great and the wind is fine. And then when it gets rocky, you become like everybody else. That's not what you want to be. Let's refocus. Let's seek God. That's class today. I, I will be uh, gone next week. Um, uh, I get a chance. You know how we have a national day of prayer and they have the prayer breakfast in D.C.? Uh, uh, they've got that in England. And I've been asked to go over there for their prayer breakfast. And so I get to do that. Pray for me to, to be a good example from the U.S. over there. And then... Um, uh, uh, David Capes will be teaching from Luke chapter 10 next week. And so you won't want to miss that. It's going to be dynamite. All right, let me bless you and we'll go to church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will change our focus. I pray that you will change our heart. I pray that you will infuse us with your divine energy to not only grow before you, but to be your image bearers in this world to help your U-turn for all the tragedies that are out there. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.